Well, if you would, turn with me again in, uh, in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We're continuing our exposition of Jude together, and I've really been enjoying our time together. Um, Jude is the next to last book in the New Testament, so if you find Revelation and Maps, go back one. Well, as we've mentioned several times, Jude is writing to the churches amid theological controversy, and the gospel's being compromised. False brothers are amid the churches. They're threatening the peace of the church, and they are infecting others with their sins, and they are bringing about the judgment of God. So we come now really to the central reason for Jude and his writing. We're looking at verses 3 and 4. We're going to piece this uh, together over the next couple of times we have together. But Jude is calling the church to contend for the faith. And in this, I just wanted to slow down a little bit and piece uh, together verse 3 and look at Jude's love for the church. I don't think we can dwell on those things too much, especially in the midst of theological controversy. So, What we considered last time and what we discovered was really needful as we contend for the faith, but here we also need to consider how Jude views the church, and we're going to consider this in three points. I've entitled this message, Jude's Character of Love for the Church. So first, we're going to see Jude's affection of love for the church. Second, we're going to see in a little greater detail his actions of love for the church. And then third, and I hope hopefully maybe to your surprise, Jude being a man in association with a familiar example. So let's read verses 3 and 4 together. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Well, this brings us to the first point in our exposition, Jude's affection of love for the church. And that's the first thing we need to notice. He calls the church beloved. It is a a familiar word in the New Testament. In the original, it's agapetos. We hear that word uh, agape in there, agapetos. And it's the same word the father uses when describing the son. In Matthew 3.17, the father says, This is my beloved son, my agapitas, with whom I am well pleased. Now, this term is a very deep term of endearment and affection. Over 60% of the mentions of this word in the Old Testament appear in the Song of Solomon, that book that gives a stirring account of the love of Christ for the church. Jude's affections for the church amid war were loving affections, and his view of the church of God is God's view of the church. It is his agapitas, his beloved, and that's what he calls them, beloved. Jude loves the church. 
And we have great grounds to love the church. You can see that on your outline if you have one of those. We have great grounds to love the church. Think of these things. We're members of one body. We snub the idea of the current cultural movement, and, it, and it's bent on body mutilation. We see that all over the news, right? We snub that idea still, and I say humbly and with fear, Christians have been doing this for years. It was a mark of the Corinthian church that their love for each other was very, very low. Paul had to remind them of these things. The body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. He goes on to reason with them. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make it no, any, not any less a part of the body. Now, this is right before that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. We would deem someone not really altogether in the head who looked at their arm or any other part of their body and said, I don't need you. We've been doing this as Christians, however, for years. But we have great, great grounds, beloved, for loving the church. We are members of the same body. Elsewhere, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And I just wonder what sort of people would we be toward one another if we kept that truth constantly before us. We are members of one body. And I'm not just talking about here. But also, consider this. We have great motives to love the church. Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I think we can say at least this. A fragrant and sacrificial life unto God is one that loves the church. A fragrant and sacrificial life unto God is one that loves the church. You ever had to live with someone and forgive someone you're called to worship with Sunday after Sunday? That's fragrant. That's an offering. That's a sacrifice. And God loves the church. And that is our motive. We must imitate his love for the church. Also, we have a great command to love the church. 1 John 3.23. And this is the commandment, John says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. John was repeating nothing other than what, what the Lord Jesus Christ had told him. There's no such thing as a Christian who loves Christ and does not love the church. I dare you to find that Christian in the Bible. 
I dare you to find that Christian throughout history. They don't exist. There's no such thing as somebody who says, I love Christ and does not love the church. In his very plain and unmistakable way, John says that this is one significant mark of a true Christian. They love one another. They love the church, and we're commanded to do so. And we find these affections in Jude. This is how he addresses us. This is how he addresses the church. And it begs a question of us. How do we speak about the church? What are our affections toward her? Do we speak ill of her? She is Christ's bride, after all. Whatever we say of her, her husband is listening. How we treat her, he sees. We can call each other brother and sister, and that's a family term, no doubt. But families can acknowledge one another's presence without caring. Is that brother or sister beloved to you? That's the question. And Jude addresses us as such. Beloved. Can we sing the hymn? I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. David says this in Psalm 16.3. It's been a passage I've meditated on for many, many years now and one that constantly challenges my heart. David says, as for the saints in the land, you know what the rest of the passage says. They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Take a moment. Look around the room. Look around the room. Every believer you lay your eyes upon carries a redemptive majesty about them that God has placed on their life. Whether you see that in full bloom right now or not, God has put it there. You're not looking at a mere mortal, as Lewis would say. You're not looking at somebody dull and uninteresting. Should, should you see that person in their glorified state with your unglorified eyes, you would be tempted to worship them. That's how much glory, the weight of glory that God has put upon each believer's life. You are looking at a son or a daughter of the Lord of glory, unrefined but redeemed, not what they ought to be but loved. He came to save that person from the horror of sin. For them, he prayed. For them he bled, for them he died, and one day for them he will return. Hallelujah. We sing, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. How do you see her? Jude was a man with deep affection for the church. May God help us to believe by faith what we cannot see with our eyes. Jude was a man with deep affection for the church. 
Well, this brings us to our second point, Jude's actions of love for the church. We've seen his affections in some small degree, but what about his actions? His love was more than words, to quote the famous song. His affections set him to action. Notice those actions. First of all, love for the church made him an eager man. Love for the church made him an eager man. The NES says he was making every effort to write to them about their common salvation. The authorized version, if, you're, uh, if you like that version, says, I gave all diligence to write to you. The ESV says he was very eager. And the term means an extraordinary commitment to responsibility, to devotion in the interests of others. One theologian has said it like this. The Christian religion is an industrious religion. It knows the value of time. It understands the many and important things to be done. It seeks to improve all that it touches. Thank you for the lesson this morning. It takes the mind away from everything that promotes laziness. Paul puts it this way. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That word zeal is the same word here, diligent, every effort, eager. Solomon puts it this way, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which we are all going. Only those, and I love how the Lord meets us so tenderly in tying things together, I didn't talk to Jason, I promise you. Only those who improved upon the talents, beloved, that they received were commended by the Lord. Matthew 25, 16. Whatever else we can say about that parable, one thing is clear. God has given us a variety of spiritual privileges, not for ourselves, but for the usefulness of the church. And God does not desire you to return to him that which he gave you in the same measure in which he gave it. The one who had two talents gave him back four. The one who had five gave him even more. One man may say, I only have one talent. What am I supposed to do in the church? Well, be eager beloved. Be eager and improve upon the talent. Another who's been given many talents must do the same. Jude was a man of this sort. He was a man who loved the church eagerly. Love for the church made him give his all to her and to improve upon what he had. It made him hungry for opportunity. It made him hungry for opportunity, hungry to do good, Hungry to love the church. Hungry to see souls saved. I think it's right to say that it's not just enough to do good to the church, but to do good and love her with eagerness, diligence, making every effort. Now, everyone at some point in their life, I'm sure, knows what it's like to get the bare minimum from a lover. 
I'm sure we've all experienced that. But I have to ask the question, are we hungry for opportunities to do good to the church? Are we hungry for those things? What do we make of the Christian who only does good to her when he's forced to do so? What do we make of that? Jude sought opportunity. It's there in the text. I was eager. Jude sought opportunity, but many hardly take opportunity. Again, can we sing with the hymn writer, beloved? For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Love made Jude eager for the good of the church. Second, love for the church made him a timely man. It made him an eager man, but it also made him a very timely man. And I'll be brief here. Notice the shift in his intentions. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. His heart was making diligent plans, even possibly in the midst of you know, gathering materials, making notes, uh, doing outlines, thinking deeply on a specific subject, and working diligently to write to them. But love made him recalculate. Love made him a timely remedy. It made him a lot less rigid and more flexible in his plans. Love made him a timely man. Third, love made him an exact man. It made him an exact man. When love is timely, it's also precise. And I was, as I was considering this point, I, uh, I ran across an intriguing and really amusing story about how many uh, people in the Latin community swear by this apparently magical and ubiquitous substance called Vicks Vaporub. It's like the Greeks with Windex. It cures everything from psoriasis to poison ivy. You know the movie reference I'm talking about, right? According to uh, sources closest to the incident, Vicks, uh, customarily used to ease cough and congestion, has been applied to a wonderfully curious array of life circumstances. Acne, sunburn, mosquito bites, chapped lips, and bumps from a fall. Some of you are sitting there going, hmm, makes sense. Now, to their defense, Procter & Gamble markets Vicks as being, quote, temporarily uh, able to relieve minor aches and pains on muscles and joints. Do you mean to tell me the same thing that can help me breathe easy at night can relieve my arthritis? Say it ain't so. This expression of love, though I think well-intended, is not very precise. Two times Jude mentions writing to them. Writing to them. Francis Bacon, I love his last name, said this, reading makes a full man. We all need to be readers as Christians. Discussion makes a ready man. 
but writing makes an exact man. Reading a full man, discussion a ready man, writing, every word weighs a thousand pounds when you write. It makes an exact man. Jude was an exact man. Now, writing has always been helpful to the truth, right? It's better preserved the truth down through the ages. Uh, Our confession says that's the way the scripture was propagated throughout the ages. Like water from a well, we can keep drawing from that fixed body of truth. Now, I realize that not everyone is called to this sort of thing. And I'm not telling you you have to do so. But I do think there's a helpful principle here that can be drawn out. In Jude's love for the church, he set out to employ the highest and the greatest skill in his possession to meet their current need. Let me say that again. In Jude's love for the church, as a precise man, as an exact man, he set out to employ the highest and the greatest skill in his possession to meet their current need. He was given to write, and he did so. When error threatened the church, Jude set out to employ that most effective weapon in his arsenal. And I think the principle is this. Love always seeks to do what is precise, what is exact, fitting for the situation. Proverbs 15.23 reminds us of this. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man who receives it. And a word in season, how good it is, how good it is. Is Romans 8.28 true? Obviously. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is true. But is it a word in season five minutes after a couple is reeling in pain at the loss of their child? I'm going to argue humbly, no, it's not. We must pray for the spirit of Isaiah here. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. What does it mean to be taught, Isaiah? That I may know how. To sustain with a word him who is weary. Not what to say, but how to say it. Precision in when we say what we say and how we say it. Hebrews 10.24 says we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We are not simply to stir one another up to love and good works, but to consider how to do those things. I have to consider your life particularly. How can I be an encouragement to Zach? How can I be encouragement to Brandon? I have to know those men particularly so that I can consider how to stir them up. And as we've mentioned several times, Jude will show us that mercy, among other things, is fitting for every occasion. But it's not always applied in the same way. It's like tobacco. It's good for chewing on and a bee sting. It draws out the poison. And we have to consider these things and do the same. But if you're wrestling with that, well, I'll just spout Romans 8.28. Every time something happens to somebody, car wreck, loss of a child, doesn't matter. It's true. Given the Bible. I think this point is proven also by our experience. We know 
when we are loved well. We know it because we see the precision of those intentions. Oh, she says, my fuzzy blanket, my favorite socks, my favorite coffee, yummy. Men, I think you know what I'm talking about. Those strange creatures in our home, those common bedfellows, suffer in many ways differently than we do. And therefore, they need our special, special consideration when ministering to their needs. Do you know how to love in that way? Not everything's fixed with BC powder and duct tape. Okay? You get the point. We have to love the church the same. Love made Jude an exact man, and we must consider one another in that love. Fourth, love made him a man disinclined to war. Love made him a man disinclined to war. Maybe you don't see it in the text. Maybe you do. His heart was planning and preparing one thing, willing, diligent, zealous to write concerning the common salvation we have. External circumstances pressed him to do another. Only constrained by the external threat did he pick up to write an appeal to contend. Jude did not wake up every morning looking for a fight. He was a man of peace. He desired much to talk about the same things that we share, a common salvation. Rather than being a man eagerly wanting to write to the church to contend, we find him to be a man who was disinclined as the first motion of his heart to fight. Yet, he was a man once pressed, ready to do so, ready to do so. When called to war, Jude went wholeheartedly, wholly committed, ready to die. And as we see, as we go on through the epistle, he was highly effective in his warfare. But he was not clawing for battle, beloved. We must not be naive about the trickiness of our flesh with regard to this. We can come to enjoy the fight. Let's just admit it. That is very, very dangerous. Looking among his troops, General Sherman is recorded as saying, Some of you young men think that war is all glamour and glory. But let me tell you, boys, it's all hell. It's all hell. There is no glory in war. There is no glamour in war. May we never forget that fact. Being valiant in war is one thing. Enjoying war is another. Being valiant in war, and we must be for the truth, is one thing. But enjoying it is another. And our soul is in a very, very sick state. When we find deep purpose in searching for someone to disagree with, maybe even more than that, God forbid, someone to hate. That is not the attitude of a believer. And this fact says much about Jude's attitude toward perceived controversy and unity among the body. Every Christian should be disinclined to war. Yet, yet, 
by love prepared to wage it when it is thrust upon him. I hope you can see that in Jude's attitude here. He was a man disinclined to war. Fifth, love made him a man inclined to highlight those things in common rather than highlight those things in distinction. I want to camp here for a moment because I think this is crucial for us to understand as we go uh, out into the culture to contend for the truth. This fact is like one of those little nuggets you read over really fast and you really don't grasp the weight of it and what the Holy Spirit intended when he wrote this. Those words, mercy, peace, and love, hopefully had that same effect on you. We just read over that introduction, but as you unpack it, you see, wow, that's a, that's a profound thought right there at the front of theological warfare. We have to explore this idea that Jude brings out here in verse 3 called our common salvation. Love made Jude inclined to highlight those things in common rather than highlight those things in distinction. Maybe I could say it another way. Jude was eager to keep the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. Considering his audience in the early Christian community, men and women separated by nationality, by culture, by outlook, by education, he wonderfully and beautifully, and I would argue wisely, unites them all under this same rubric, our common salvation. We're no different. The body of Christ is no different now. Various particularities mark us. Yet, there are a great many things that we hold in common with every Christian around the world. So Jude calls these things to mind. Weak and strong, young and old, all share in a common salvation. One is quoted as saying, Christians may not have all things in common, but have a common salvation. So what is meant here by this word common salvation? The word common doesn't mean ordinary. It means commonly held together, a mutual interest, those things that are precious and shared among us. It's the word koinos. You've heard the word koinonia, right? It's the word koinos, where we get the word we most frequently translate as fellowship, One theologian has put it this way. This has the meaning of the salvation which is offered to all people alike upon the same conditions, from the same source, and entailing the same obligations. Jude saw the church in league with him and he with them. So I'm going to run the risk here of oversimplification and possibly greater than that, overrun, uh, run the risk of overlooking something. But I want to start a list, and I want you to complete that list. Add to this list. I'm willing to say that every faithful Christian, every true Christian, has eight things in common. Eight. Can we agree on eight things with the Christian body around the world? I hope so. I hope so, beloved. Eight things. Number one. We are all chosen by the same grace. 
And I was greatly helped here by Thomas Manton, if you know who that is. Manton says here, John and Andrew are different than Peter and Paul, but they are chosen by the same grace. God's motives to save each is the same, the free grace of God alone. We are all chosen by the same grace alone. We all have the same Christ, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given in, uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have the same Christ. We are all redeemed by the same blood. It's written in the law in Exodus 30.15. The rich shall give no more. The poor shall give no less than half a shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So it is with the death of Christ. The same ransom that was paid for your sin was paid for my sin and the sin of every believer. His blood was shed equally for all of God's elect. Equally. Fourth, we are all justified by the same righteousness. There is no distinction, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned, and all who are in him are justified in the very same way. Manton goes on to elaborate on this point. He says, there's a great difference in the degree of faith in a man which receives this righteousness, but there is no difference in the righteousness itself. He says this, a giant or a strong man can hold a precious jewel, and so can a child. The jewel is the same. Though a man holds it with a stronger hand, it loses nothing of its worth in the hand of a child. So here, the righteousness is the same, though the faith is not the same. We are all justified by the same righteousness alone. Fifth, we all have the same privileged access to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Sixth, we have the same way to those privileges, faith alone. Faith alone, access to those privileges. Seventh, we have the same rule. It is the scripture alone, 2 Timothy 3.16. And lastly, we are all one body. We talked about this earlier. Paul says in Colossians 2.19, we hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth. That is from God. I would hope that we could say as believers in Christ, those are at least eight things we share across the entire spectrum of the Christian world. For true believers, I would hope we could say those are eight things we share. That is what Jude is talking about, our common salvation. Now, the details of those things in someone's life is one thing. The reality of them in someone's life, in a believer's life, is another. They are things we share in common, and Jude was eager to discuss those things. Spurgeon says this, have to work in some Spurgeon here. The denominations of the Christian church are very like the divisions of a plowed field. 
by means of furrows that mark the surface, but the land remains to all intents and purposes one field. I do not speak of mere professing Christians, he says, but truly spiritual people, such as are all one in Christ Jesus and their salvation in all respects the same. If they do not have all things in common, at least they have one and the same salvation. All converted men, he says, believe in the same essential truths, feel the working of the same spirit within them, and press forward to the same end, namely, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. All Christians say that. I don't care where you meet them. Deepest, darkest jungle, most metropolitan area in America. All Christians say the same thing. This brings us really to one great observation. The things we hold in common, beloved, should be more frequently dwelt upon rather than the things we hold in particular. Let me say that again. The things we hold in common should be more frequently dwelt upon rather than the things we hold in particular. A man who can't seem to see this, I think, lives in a theological bubble. Jude was eager to write concerning these things. Necessity pulled him away to something else. And this fact brings us to our final point. Number three, Jude, I want you to see him as a man in association with a familiar example. Now, I've just made the observation that the things we hold in common should be more frequently dwelt upon rather than the things we hold in particular. And I am not aware, I'm not unaware, forgive me, I'm not unaware of the context in which I'm saying all these things. We are a particular people, aren't we? We call ourselves particular Baptists, not only in aspect to the atonement, but believing particular things. Our confession of what we believe to be the best and most clear expression of biblical truth is particular. 32 chapters, 114 questions, and more scripture references than the stars in the sky. Some of us have given up much to believe what we believe. Some of us have more skin in the game than others, but it's skin nonetheless. I don't want to deny and overlook that fact. But, but, lest we forget in that wonderfully instructive introduction to our confession entitled to the judicious and impartial reader, our forefathers bent over backwards, not to highlight distinction, Though distinction is made, but they've been over backwards to highlight those things we have in common. In their writing, what do they say is, quote, one thing that greatly prevailed with us to undertake this work, and quote, the thing most nearly concerned. The instruction and establishment of the great truths of the gospel in clear understanding and steady belief and fruitfulness before God. Basically a summary of what I just shared in those eight points. 
How did they seek to do these things? Well, they tell us. Number one, they used the same terminology as their brothers of a different persuasion on many theological points, even using the same exact words. What was their reason? Quote, This we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion and also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published in the world on behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities. End quote. They were showing that not only were they in agreement with men of a congregational persuasion, most notably set forth in the Savoy Declaration, and those of a Presbyterian persuasion, most notably in the Westminster, but they were standing with many other Orthodox confessions. They sought, they sought to show forth their agreement in the widest possible sense and on a global scale. They used the same terminology. Secondly, they had, in their own words, quote, no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words, which has been in consent with the Holy Scriptures, used by others before us. They were much like Jude, beloved, much like the Scripture presents a Christian to be. They were deeply driven and more inclined to highlight the things in common than those things in distinction. In the things which they differed, they confessed to being openly plain with modesty, humility, and a great desire to be inoffensive. May we do the same. As to their precision, they showed themselves to be abundantly loving. Quote, we have also taken, to, taken care to affix texts of Scripture at the bottom for the confirmation of each article of our confession, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select, such as are most clear and pertinent for the proof of what is asserted. It was carefully crafted love, fit for the occasion. And what of their intentions? Quote, that contention is most remote from our design in all that we have done in this matter. That sounds like mercy. That sounds like people of peace. That sounds like people who love the church. These were mature men. These were hardy men, big-chested men, particular men for the truth. And they were also very broad and loving men. Christianity for them was a broad and hardy thing, not a narrow and crotchety thing, a thing which somehow closed them off to the world and other Christians. Young men, listen, you have a heart for the truth. You have a heart for the truth. I see it in you. I hear it in your burning words. I see a desire for a robust confessionalism among you. And I praise God for those things. You will carry the truth long after many of us are gone. You are the future. But if you want to build the church, you must be a man of this sort. Big-chested, big truth, but a man of love who loves the church. You must not only be particular down to the very syllable, the jot and tittle, 
but you have to be broad and hearty and loving. It can't be one or the other. It just can't. If what we've believed has made us less broad and more narrow, we are not in league with these men. We are not in league with Jude. We just aren't. We may confess their doctrine, but we do not behave in the same spirit. Would Jude be in league with us? Better yet, would, be in, would we be in league with him? I am embarrassed to say that as Baptists, we are better at dividing than uniting. That should break our hearts. We excel at this. What are we going to divide over next? How many toes Benjamin Keach actually had? Did he have all ten? Don't think the church has not suffered from such silly things in the past. It has. And don't think we're immune to it in the future. Has it never struck us in the heart when we ride by the sign in the downtown square, Second Baptist Church? What happened to the first? Does it not give us pause? Now, granted, I'm young and maybe I'm naive. I'll grant you that point. Maybe I'm a dreamer. I'll grant you that point also. Maybe I'm simple in this regard and inexperienced. Point taken. But I do know, according to our text, these things ought not be. They ought not be. If our circle of Christianity is so small that we have to stand on one leg to fit in it, maybe it's time to reevaluate our approach to contending for the truth. May God keep us far, far, far away from the spirit of division. It will make us useless in the fight. Useless. As far as it depends on you, Paul says, be at peace with all men. Well, in closing, and I'm stepping on my own toes with all of this, if we dismiss these preliminary remarks, we miss not only the understanding and example of great-hearted men, and I've tried to present that in some small way to you, Jude and those of his spirit, but we miss a great truth that will serve us well when contending for the faith. Love for the church fits us for the battle. Love fits us for the battle. It's been well noted. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. May the Lord grant us that spirit, beloved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in these things we ask you to be gracious to us. Help us as Christians to be hearty, particular, and broad, but to be men and women, saints who love the church. If we can't identify who we love, Lord, then we're bound to count many our enemies who are really our friends. Would you please help us? Thank you so much for the grace of your spirit and the truths of your word. Help us to believe these things and live these things. 
and forgive us where we don't. In Christ's name, amen.